Welcome to Engaging Culture, a podcast presented by Bridgeway Christian Church. I'm Brian Kiley. On this episode, Pastor Lance Hahn and I are joined by pastor and author Nate Pyle. Nate has written two books, including Man Enough, How Jesus Redefines Manhood, which is by far the best Christian men's book I've ever read. So we're going to talk about the heart behind the book, how Jesus models a healthier version of manhood than anything we see in our culture. All of that and more on this episode of Engaging Culture. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 21 of the Engaging Culture Podcast. Brian Kiley here with a very overdressed Lance Hahn. That is me. Yes, (laughs) I'm wearing a tie because I want to be superior to everyone else. Well, mission accomplished. Thank you. Uh, We are joined on video today by Nate Pyle coming to us from the great state of Indiana. Nate, thanks for being here. The great state. The great (laughs) state. Wanted to make sure we get that in there. Uh, Nate, thanks for being with us. Really appreciate the time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So, uh, I we're gonna get right into it here. Uh, I I kind of told I shared this story with Nate over email, but uh, 2016, I'm getting ready to do a men's conference here at Bridgeway, and I was probably just procrastinating on doing some actual work. And I'm looking at books online, and I find Nate's book. Uh, I'd never come across any of Nate's Nate's work before, um, but I I I find the book. I'm like, okay, I'll buy the book and see if I can find some inspiration for the conference. And I get to the dedication page of the book, and I, I don't, I guess I read dedication pages. I don't <laughs> typically look to yeah, them I don't. for inspiration. <laughs> um, and at the time, my my boys were I think five and three. I've got two boys, and what he wrote at the dedication page for his son was so simple and so profound and so moving. It is it is stuck with me to this day, and I even I shared it in a sermon here at Bridgeway not that long ago, and built a whole message for that conference around this this concept. Uh, it just said, "For Luke, uh, you have nothing to prove." And and that message was so powerful for me as a, as a dad, so powerful for me just as a as a human, and 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 it just got me thinking so much about the the importance of that message and how much that's something I, I want my own sons to understand. So. I guess even before I ask you why you wrote the book, I, I, this has been a big part of uh, part. That's a big part of the book and a big part of stuff that you've written and spoken on regarding kind of men's stuff. Why is that such an important message for for men and for children to to understand? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a whole lot in that question right yeah. there. But I, for me, I I wrote that dedication to my son just because I wanted him to understand that my love for him was going to be unconditional, that he wasn't going to have to earn that in any way, shape or form. And that that's true of his relationship with me, but also the true of his relationship with his heavenly father. And so there isn't anything that he has to do in order to earn love. There isn't anything that he has to accomplish. He doesn't have to become a certain person. He doesn't have to prove himself in any way to me whatsoever. Um, and, and so I wanted him to understand that I wanted that to be very clear. And I think that, that if I wanted to take, a a synthesis of the entire book, that one sentence kind of sums up what I was going for uh, when I wrote the book. And so uh, he can't read the book right now, but he can understand that <laughs> phrase. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's something that we can demonstrate, obviously, for our, for our children, you know, early on. So so you, you say that that's the synthesis of the book, but more broadly speaking, uh, what was the inspiration behind writing a book, uh, specifically how Jesus redefines manhood? What, what inspired you to want to write a book like that? 
Yeah. So this is kind of a long story. So settle in. Uh, <laughs> but in, well, I graduated from, from seminary, got ordained in 2008. And at the time our denomination was going through a, what well, it was trying this new leadership development process. It was over a period of time. And so about two years into that, those of us who were in the cohort went down to Houston, uh, for a retreat. And while we were down there, uh, and on the retreat over the over the couple of days we were there, I just got very present to the sense of loneliness that was going on within me. Huh. And uh, at the end of the retreat, we had an opportunity to go up to somebody and share with them what we had learned, what we had seen, what we felt God calling us to, whatever it was. And so I went up to a friend of mine uh, named Jim, who is also one of the leaders of of the cohort, and said to him, "Hey, I don't I don't know that I've got anything concrete, but I just have this gnawing sense of loneliness." Um, and, and I don't know what to do with that. And so he said, well, you know, he started asking me all these questions. Like, where, uh, why do you feel like you're lonely? And I said, well, I don't think anybody really knows me. And he said, well, why don't you think anybody really knows you? I said, well, I don't let people, you know, know who really, really get to know me. He said, well, why not? And I said, well, I'm afraid that ultimately that if they get to know me, they're going to reject me. And he said, well, why do you have that fear? I said, you know, then I started you know, I get a little teary eyed and started to just get emotional and said, well, it goes back to this experience that I had when I was in seventh grade and my friends groups changed and I got rejected and all this. And I just can see that pattern throughout my life. And he said, where else in your life does this fear that if you're known, you're going to get rejected show up? And, and I knew right away. Um, and I just lost it. And I was like in my relationship with God. So here I was, I'm a 30 year old pastor and I'm acknowledging that I felt like if God really got to know me or if I really show up as I am in the midst of my relationship with God, that God's going to reject me. And so Jim, I mean, he was really comforting and, you know, he gave me a big hug. And after I kind of gathered myself a little bit, he, he looked at me and said, you know, if you, if you take on the task of allowing people to know you. And if you're courageous enough to be honest about who you are in your relationships, you will stop feeling like a 13 year old boy and you will start feeling like a man. And up to that point, like I had said nothing about not feeling like a man or anything like that. And I thought what he said sounded like total hogwash. Um, <laughs> I was just like, this sounds like psycho babble, <laughs> like, uh, whatever. But I took it on cause I trust him. And so I said, okay, I will do that. And what was crazy is he was right. Like I suddenly started to see the ways in which that 13 year old boy was dominating my life. And I began to feel more confident in who I was. And I felt more like a man. And that just made me wonder, I was like, okay, up to this point, I'm 30 years old. I'm married. I've got a child. I'm pastoring a church. I, uh, you know, I hunt, I fish, I downhill ski, I backpack. I do all the things that men are supposed to do. And yet it was doing something that's seemingly unmanly, being vulnerable, crying in front of another guy. Uh, this is the thing that m what really kickstarted my process of feeling like a man. And so that made me wonder, is there something wrong with me or is there something wrong with our definition of what it means to be a man? Hmm. Um, and so that started me on just this journey of exploring what does it mean to be a man? Where did our definitions come from? Why are the books written the way that they're written? And eventually I, I wrote the book that I did. So yeah. that's kind of the, the background and the genesis to it. Awesome. Love it. I wonder if Lance, maybe you could speak into this just a little bit. I, I think that, you know, a lot of what Nate, Nate's sharing about, I, I don't know, you didn't use this word, but almost the sense of almost kind of feeling a little bit stuck, uh, mm -hmm. especially stuck in these, these memories from the past that, that we have and that we have a really hard time processing. How have you seen that play itself out in terms of your own interaction with, with men uh, just in ministry context that you've been in? 
I think the the desire to be included, the desire for love, the desire for affirmation is so powerful that it will make us do some pretty crazy things. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done a lot of different studies in um, in in gender and, and and pieces like that over here at Bridgeway and trying to understand men, women, understand LGBTQ issues, understanding all these different things. And 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 while. I'm looking at that. What I see is the need to be included and affirmed yeah. is so intense that we will bend uh, in order to try to be accepted. And 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 what's intriguing to me is, and I don't know if this was a quote that was referred to in your book, but also is something in my mind, which is it's one thing to get a dude one on one; it's another thing to get him in a group. Because mm-hmm. the minute you go to a men's camping trip or the minute you go to a men's retreat, the minute you get a herd of them together, this weird mob mentality jumps to the lowest common denominator. And then everybody has to talk about stereotypical things. Mm-hmm. And so there's a bunch of men that won't go to men's events at Bridgeway because it's too stereotypically dudish. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's this idea of I don't belong there. Yeah. Uh, if I'm going to a men's retreat, but I don't belong and I'm a man, what does that make me? I'm left right. in I'm left in a, a whole nother land. So I think that as children, we're trying to figure out, am I an adult? Am I a friend? Am I this? We're always looking for identity development. And one of those identity developments is simply gender of saying, am I accepted by my own kind? Whatever my mm-hmm. own kind is, am I accepted there? And if we are rejected young, we'll carry that forward uh, all the way into adulthood and beyond. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think yep. that's certainly true. Uh, yeah, and what ahead. I found too is that from when when we're talking about men and looking for that particular affirmation as it relates to their manhood, uh, it's it's one thing and it's okay to be affirmed by women, but ultimately men want to be accepted right. by other men as men. Yes. And this is, I think, why you start seeing that that. Uh, catering to the lowest common denominator or the competition begins to rise or right. the one-upmanship starts to happen is because if I don't participate in these activities or in this kind of co- in the conversation that's happening, then it could, and then all of this again is subconscious, but it, it could result in me being seen by other men as less than a man. And rather than do that, I will participate in this because ultimately that's what we long for. Yeah. It's almost like there's like, no one really knows who's making the rules, but we all feel this kind of slavish need to comply with them <laughs> and right. that can and that that obviously can cause all sorts of problems and oddities i mean even it could it could lead to you know a bunch of men being together for an event or whatever and kind of everybody going home feeling like i was very inauthentic or just very uncomfortable in that environment and we're all sort of again playing by these rules that are that are unspoken and very difficult to define sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, I um, I, I'm not going to say that this does not occur uh, in women's ministry and occur yeah. with women, but here's one unique trait I feel like that comes out for men to struggle is that men in general don't tend to be very affirming, hmm. just right. in terms of communication styles. And so, while a woman may look and say, "Am I accepted?" women are a little better at communication uh, mm-hmm. uh, abilities. And so when you get around a bunch of <laughs> little stunted dudes <laughs> and they're not willing to, you know, they kind of wait for the mom to tell their son that their son is a man. They'll mm-hmm. wait for the mom to tell their daughter that their daughter's a woman. You know what I mean? They keep waiting and they don't do the affirmation. So then the men continue to crave 
because they're saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one thing for my mom to say I'm I'm attractive. It's another thing for kids at high school to think I'm attractive. You know what I mean? Because right. you're like you're biased. You're my mom. You have you're always gonna say something nice about me. But my peers don't think so. Therefore, yeah, right. it's not legit. Well, with guys, it's the same thing. If a man is not going to affirm another man and they leave that to women to do, then the man will always have to look. Yeah. He's always going to have to wander. Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, yeah. that's certainly true. Um, you're pretty critical in the book of the, is this idea of kind of the, the manly men do manly things concept. Uh, yes. wh- why, why is that? Uh, and I, f- first of all, I would very much be critical of that myself. So just so you know, this is coming from this question is coming from a place of agreement. Why is that idea so dangerous in your view? Yeah, I think because it ultimately doesn't accomplish what we're after. Uh, you can do all the quote unquote manly things, and that doesn't necessarily get you the affirmation that you're looking for. Uh, and what I think is ultimately dangerous is it defines masculinity by what we do rather than by who we are. Hmm. Uh, and, and so we're defining it by these exterior, like, have I accomplished these things? Uh, do I participate in particular activities? Uh, and we define it by those things rather than by character or virtue or any other type of thing that's much more intrinsic to our personhood, right? It's yeah. it, it becomes this exterior checklist. And I just think that that's ultimately harm, harmful. And, and I think it's harmful for a number of reasons because the idea of manly things or uh, the manly things that men ought to do, I think that that is actually culturally bound and that shifts over time, right? Yeah. So during a war, the manly thing to do is to enlist. Right. During uh, the 1980s, the, the manly thing to do is make as much money as possible. Right. Uh, you know, so the shift of culture ultimately shifts those, those, uh, those things on the checklist that we have to do to be a man. And if we're constantly defining ourselves by those checklists, then we're never ultimately going to get that affirmation because as soon as we get it, it's going to shift. Yeah. It's a moving, tar- it's a moving target. It's a moving target all the, right? all, all the time. And, and you say also in the book, you say that, that masculinity does not need to be proved. And we've talked a little bit already kind of around around this idea of we all feel this need to prove ourselves in some way, but we're not really sure how or why, or mm-hmm. then we feel like we have and it doesn't work or this and that. You, you say that masculinity does not need to be proved. It needs to be affirmed. Uh, right. what, what does that look like and why is it important? Yeah, for me, it kind of goes back to that story I told very at the very beginning. And 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 remember, I had done everything to try to prove that I was a man. Yeah. Pastoring a church, married, children, pay my own car, pay for my own car insurance. You know, like I'm doing the things that men are supposed to do, right. and yet I still didn't have it. What what I think, and it wasn't just me being vulnerable and 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 in that moment with Jim, it was also Jim saying like. Like, I see you as a man. And one of the things he told me that I didn't say at the beginning of the story is, is I've never felt closer to you than I do right now. Hmm. Right. He was affirming, like, despite the fact that I was feeling weak and I was feeling a little bit ashamed that I had put myself out there in that way. He affirmed me and said, no, actually, what you did actually allows me to be closer to you and allows me to love you. And, and I and I value that. Uh, and that affirmation was was huge. And so I've come to believe that I don't need to prove that I'm a man. What yeah. I what what ultimately I need is to be affirmed, and yeah. and there's a theological component to that. Yeah. Uh, we don't have to prove ourselves as being a child of God. Before we ever do anything, God takes His signet ring and puts it on our finger and welcomes us back home. As the, from you know, we are the prodigals. He's welcome back on welcoming back home, and so uh, God affirms our position as children long before we prove ourselves worthy of that designation. 
Yeah. Amen. That's great. Uh, so we're talking to Nate Pyle today, author of Man Enough, How Jesus Redefines Manhood. Pick it up wherever you get your books. You'll be you'll be glad you did. Uh, Lance, in, in your view, why is... Uh, we're going to talk in a second about some unhealthy views of masculinity that exist in our culture. Why is affirmation of a person's manhood, as opposed to it being held out as something they need to prove or whatever, why do you view that as important? So for me, obviously, one of the big hallmarks of my ministry, my writing, and stuff that we do at Bridgeway is identity. Yeah. Everything's about identity, right? So I think all of Christianity is about identity. What did Jesus do and who did he make us? Well, I mean, that's him. It's who we are, right? And and not what we do. And this whole idea of trying to separate out performance from identity is so critical. Yeah. Um, and and especially when it deals with, with men is what is so mind-bending is that you go, I am biologically male, but I have people questioning if I'm male. And what does that make me? Like, I don't really understand because I'm somehow having to achieve something that I was told I am as by birth, but now I'm trying to earn it. And that doesn't, doesn't even make any sense. Right. And and what happens is, is we fall into these stereotypical patterns of winners and losers. It's not even, are you a man? You may be just less of a man than everybody else. So that creates the winners and losers. It creates the hierarchy. And so when you, it's like, well, you know what? Uh, I chop wood. Well, I chop more than you chop. You know, it's like <laughs> there's all this weird uh, competition stuff that comes in when when you start buying into the competition there is always a sense of feeling less than yeah. mm-hmm. when in fact you take that aside and say this is who I am as an identity and nothing's going to change that how I operate as a man is going to be unique in my design with the Lord yeah. but I'm okay uh, you know it's that it's needing to have that baseline safety I'm okay. My dad hmm. says I'm okay in heaven. My, you know, my, that's the idea. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's crucial. Nate, did you have any comments on that or? Well, no, I think you're exactly right, Lance, on the, on the idea of the winners and the losers. In fact, I just wrote an article recently and I used that exact phrase of masculinity is a game of winners and losers. And those who def- get, get the opportunity, like they're the culture influencers or yes. whatever they, they get to define what masculinity is. Yeah. Ultimately, they're going to define the game in such a way that they continue to win at it. Absolutely. Um, and, and you can even see just one of the ways in which this plays out in which you, that hierarchy you're talking about, if you think back to, and, and, it's, and this maybe this still shows up in some days, but when in the 19, early 1900s and the turn of the century into the, even the 1950s, when white men would refer to black men as boys, yes, right. Yeah. That that's yeah. even though they could be the same exact age, they're using that as a way to denigrate, as a way yes. to to shore up their position in society, and to make sure that that hierarchy stays in place. Yeah. Um, and so that's just one of the ways in which masculinity can be weaponized against another yeah. is to make I want I'll feel more like a man as long as I'm higher up the pile than that guy over there. Right. That's right. right. And and obviously this is not what we're talking about, but this this speaks so directly into the issue of women and equality because the very idea that a man could denigrate another man by saying that he is more woman-like means mm-hmm. that women are less. And you realize that constant theme is going on to say, listen, there are varying degrees of man, but at least you're not a woman. Right. Yes. And then it's always a hierarchy of who yes. is more important. And that has led to so much damage in yep. the human condition. Yeah. Yeah. Nate, as you look out, I mean, you're, you're pastoring a church, you're seeing this on the ground, or as even you look out into broader, kind of our broader culture, national issues, th- things to that effect. 
What are some ways that that you see unhealthy views of masculinity having an impact? Oh man, I think it's all over. Yeah. I mean, for one, you could just start with the Me Too movement and everything that's gone on there. Right. I mean, it, it, we are sort of having this eruption of everything that's been under the sur- under the surface with unhealthy relationships between men and women, and men exerting their power and their dominance over women. Um, we can see it in politics in a number of different areas where we still are trying to exert powers, uh, where we are name calling, where we are uh, doing whatever we can. And sort of, you know, be the, the extreme braggadociousness of, of politics in some regards. Yeah. You can see it in certain aspects of sports, although even it's interesting that sports seems to be a place where it's changing somewhat. Right. You watch some of the emotion that came out after Kobe's death yeah. uh, and, and, and guys being very open about it and wanting yep. to express their emotions. But that's actually a shift away from it. And we all recognize it in those moments, right? We recognize in those moments where that emotion is being felt and, and, and guys are actually coming together and being honest with with one another about their fears, about the reality that we don't have this much time. And so I'm going to be honest with my relationships. We're all like, oh, that's wonderful. And it's beautiful. And then a few days past <laughs> the tragedy, we're all back to, well, yeah, I'll take you down anytime. You know, like yeah. it's just this really <laughs> weird thing, but we recognize there's something wonderful there. Yeah. Um, and so those are, I see, I see that, that, you know, it's been called toxic masculinity. For me, what I see is just insecure masculinity. And yeah. I see that all over the place. Yeah. We even see it in some things like products, right? Like hmm. certain laundry detergent. <laughs> is marketed towards men by having a more manly smell, whatever that means. Why do I care what my laundry detergent smells like? And how is that going to make me feel more like a man? And yet somehow we've bought into that because we need to prove it in an exterior fashion to other people. I'm, I'm, I'm a man or I'm at least not, uh, a female. Yeah. You didn't know you needed body wash just for men until the company told you that you needed this. You don't want to be, you know, yeah, anyway. But uh, now I'm glad you brought up insecurity because I think as I, I, I see a lot of those same, same things that you do, obviously in our culture, the, just the, the brashness, the, the overly braggadocious, the name calling, all of that. And uh, to me, and I see men behaving in that way in the political arena and in, and in sports and in culture and different things. And it just, I'll just be honest. It strikes me as so incredibly small, mm-hmm. uh, and and it's hard not to be very judgmental when I when I see that kind of behavior, and and in I guess in just sort of an effort to try to have some measure of, well, something other than just a judgmental attitude towards towards all of that. Uh, I, I I guess I've just started to see insecurity underneath that. That, yep. that underneath a lot of the most uh, toxic behaviors, I mean, you reference toxic masculinity, is really this sense of, of insecurity. Uh, how else do you see insecurity as part of what is perpetuating these kind of generic male stereotypes that we've been talking about? Yeah, I mean, so maybe I'll, maybe I'll answer that with a story. Uh, when I was a youth pastor, I also did Young Life on the side. So for those who don't know, Young Life is in a parachurch ministry, exists yeah. outside the church to reach out to co- high school students. Uh, and so I was highly involved with Young Life. And when I was doing youth ministry, I would also say that I was a very insecure person did not feel like I was accepted, was constantly caught up in the in the trying to prove myself. And the way that that came across was overly confident and (laughs) kind of sometimes braggy, right? And so one of the other leaders on the team started calling me bag of chips because I thought I was all that a bag of chips, (laughs) right? And, and I think that that's a lot of the ways in which that insecurity begins to manifest itself. Like I'm, I'm trying so hard to make others 
it respect me, like me. Uh, one of the things that was going through the back of my mind uh, that I've seen through some counseling and coaching was that my fear of reject rejection, the way that I dealt with that was I will do everything to prove to you that you shouldn't reject me because I'll be good to your, for your team. I'll help your mm. church grow. I'll, you know, all of those types of things. I'm going to earn my place and become indispensable. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that that's what shows up in a lot of places out in culture, right? This yeah. men needing to prove themselves. So you're in a conversation, you tell a story and the guy next to you has got, Oh, I got a better story. And that yeah. one upmanship yeah. that comes out that way. Uh, the competitiveness, two guys who really enjoy each other and they get on the basketball court and all of a sudden they can not be friends whatsoever. <laughs> and they're, you know, like that, it just goes South. Yeah. Uh, the church meeting that turns left because all of a sudden two people get into it for no reason. Right. Yeah. Or, or what seems to us be no reason, but for whatever reason, that insecurity pops up and it manifests itself in different ways. So yeah. I, don't, I don't know if that yeah. really gets at what you were going there, but that for me, when I think of it, it, that's how the insecurity manifests itself. Oftentimes you don't see it as in, Oh, that guy's not confident. It's the exact opposite. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right about that. And I guess maybe I'll, I'll throw the question to you, Lance, kind of the opposite side of that. Uh, obviously in the, just to be an adult, let alone a man, but we'll talk specifically about being a man here. Uh, men have responsibilities. We have jobs. We have families. We're we're husbands. We're parents. We're you know some are grandparents. We 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 have all of these uh, roles and responsibilities in, in our lives that are very real. And we talk about kind of the unhealth of one-upsmanship and overcompetitiveness and everything else. But the fact remains, uh, we have responsibilities. We have things we need to accomplish in terms of our, uh, for lack of a better term, obligations to people in our lives and and and, and this and that. How can a, a more secure sense of identity allow us to be more effective mm. in these areas that matter while avoiding some of the things that Nate was just describing? So, so let me say it in a roundabout way. So when I was doing some study in different gender pieces, uh, the CDC and a couple of world organizations were examining other countries about the effects of tax, uh, toxic masculinity. So, for example, machismo cultures and things like that, where all of a sudden they would uh, be sexually promiscuous in order to try to raise their status or lock in as a man. But now all of a sudden they had extra responsibilities because now they had children and they had destroyed relationships. And then the fighting and all the other things were now causing them more problems. So we would say that a benefit of having a settled identity in Christ is that when you have nothing to prove, you can focus on what matters, right? Mm, because you good. waste so much time on stuff that either doesn't matter or moves you backwards, yeah. right? So if you um, go into a room, brand new room with a bunch of guys and you're posturing, they're automatically not on your team. Yeah. So now you've distorted your community and your social structures. So now you're behind. Yeah. You just cause so many extra problems for yourself. You think you're making yourself move forward. You're only in one tiny category. In every other category, you move back. When you're settled and you know who you are in Christ, then you're able to say, listen, what ought to be done? Not mm -hmm. what do I crave to do in order to make myself feel better? Right. It's like that, That yes, that need to... Well, and I'm, I was going to ask you to comment on this in a second, uh, Nate, but that, that need to walk into a room and prove ourselves kind of melts away a little bit when we have a sense of who we are, right? Yeah, yeah, because your identity is is settled in Christ. You know that, you feel that, and I don't have to earn the uh, a, the, the affirmation of others. I know who I am. You know, obviously, I want them to like me. I'm going to 
work as much as possible to live at peace with them. But now I don't have to try to say, okay, who's better? Who's got the better position in the room here? Who's going to be more valuable to the team? I can come in and know I can contribute X, Y, or Z, and they're going to contribute A, B, and C. And that's great. And we both belong. Yeah. And we can affirm that we're coming at this differently. You don't have to do it my way. I don't have to over contend. We can, it, it just makes, especially if you're thinking about from a team perspective, if you're yeah. thinking about how can we as a team most effectively deal with this problem, right? You're on yeah. mission together in the world to change something in your community, to share the gospel in your neighborhood, whatever it might be. Now all of a sudden you're in a team and you can keep that mission first and foremost, rather than jockeying for position or making sure that the other people know how important you are or how great you are at whatever you, you can let all of that go and you can just focus on using the gifts that God has given you the te- with the temperament that God has given you to accomplish the task that God has placed before you. Yeah. So you're absolutely right about that. I would bet that for a lot of men, what you just described sounds really refreshing on some level, but it also sounds really scary that, that living in that with that sort of mentality, it, it just seems to go, go so much against the grain of what we've been taught and internalized. What would you, what do you say to men who just kind of approaching life through that lens is just scary? What, how, how, is there, is there a way to make that less scary or is it just kind of, you just sort of have to go for it and then you realize there's, there's beauty and goodness in it. Oh, I think it's absolutely scary. Yeah. I, think it, I think it's, I think it's somewhat terrifying yeah. uh, because in the eyes of culture, right now we're swimming upstream against culture. We are going to, there's a chance that I'm going to look more feminine, right? If I'm going to truly embody the fruit of the spirit, gentleness and kindness and patience. And if I'm going to truly embody those, then I'm going to look different than the guy who's being loud and uh, is seeking to dominate the others in the room. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have a very different posture and it runs the risk that those in the room are going to see me as less of a man. And if I'm not confident in my identity in Christ, then I'm going to work really, I'm going to, I'm going to abandon the, <laughs> abandon what I know or b- what God has said about me. And I'm going to try to get, make sure my position in the room is, is solidified. But if I'm firm in my identity in Christ, then if they think that about me, then that's okay. But it is going to be terrifying and it is going to be like, yes, we will look different than culture. But I truly believe this is one of the ways in which we subvert culture and show just how revolutionary Jesus is. That Jesus just didn't come and isn't revolution. I mean, he's revolutionary because the the new thing that God is doing, but it's not just some future reality that we're waiting for heaven, right? It's, It's here and now and Jesus subverts our culture, all cultures, our culture, and, and, and even what we expect out of men and women. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I, so I'm, I want to, I don't want to cut you off here, no, but I, I want to change gears for a second because you just dropped us right into, in my opinion, the heart of the matter is that when we're going to talk about, um, purified humanity, uh, humanity at, uh, a little bit more closer to God's design, we all of a sudden start looking at Jesus, right? So yes, he's this epitome. Now, in one sense, you can say, um, "All right, so he's the he's the ultimate man. He, you know, he's got the vulnerability. You know, and I always look at like um, a racehorse that just is out in the wild is one thing, but one that's harnessed because it's that meekness, because it's power under control. It's he's able to cry when he when he needs to cry. He's able to laugh when he needs to laugh. He can do everything that he needs to do without mm-hmm. feeling limited by by cultural expectations, right? Well, as much as that is true." Um, uh, you also highlight out in your writings, and, and I would agree with you, and it leaves me in a bit of a wonderment, which is Jesus is a role model for women as well. 
Yes. And and so this is where it starts getting messy for me, because in a sense, I'm not quite sure which parts of Jesus is inherently male, because you have to, he's come as an example for mankind, not yes. just not just dudes. And right. so women get to look at him and go, wait a second, he's my hero as well. And I want to embody those same traits. So then uh, when everybody is the same thing, then you fall back to what is inherently male and what is inherently female. This this wrestling, which I have a very, very hard time figuring out in, in yep. all my researches, I'm because it keeps changing. As you said, cultural tends to define it. But if yep. culture is defining it, I'm not, I'm not, I can't trust that because unless it is, what was God's intention for Adam versus his intention for Eve? There is difference there, which is beautiful. (laughs) And we're supposed to have the beauty of diversity. I'm just not quite sure what the diversity is. (laughs) It's like, we have so much, we have so much similarity, like, uh, well, men need to be strong. Well, yeah, you're right. So do women. Women need so to be women. strong. You know, go ahead. Try to give birth. I dare you. Yeah. Right? You know what I'm saying? And so you go, you go, men need to be strong. Women need to be strong. Well, men need to be able to uh, feel significant. Well, women need to feel significant. And it keeps going on and on and on. Yes. And so yes. Uh, so I'm going to post it back to you that in, in your research, what helps do we have in encouraging our young men or men of any age to be more manly in a godly way? Mm-hmm. And where that differs from if I'm in a women's retreat and I'm training our women to be more women in a godly way. Yeah. Is there any difference there? That's a great question because I think you're exactly right. Cause the, the best rubric I had when I was thinking about like, what is Jesus ultimately calling into calling us into, it was the fruit of the spirit. And, yes. but again, that rubric, if you will, with those different characteristics is both for men and for women. Yes. And I don't believe that Jesus is calling humanity into androgyny. Nope. Uh, and so th- trying to parse out what that difference is was really, really hard for me. Where I landed, and I'm not 100% sure that this sure. is true, but this where I landed was how we embody our agency in the world. So but I believe both men and women are called to to act in the world according to God's mission and purpose to redeem and reconcile all things back to himself. I believe that that's true. I believe both men and women have agency there, but I believe that we embody that agency differently. And some of that is, is wrapped up in our, in our biology, the biology of our bodies and how our bodies are wired. And I believe some of that is, I don't know, just this, this intangible temperament that we have. But I would say for men, our agency is largely connected to, uh, to moving things. Movement is the best way that I could describe it. Movement. So uh, we appreciate characteristics like power and speed and strength and agility because they ultimately allow us to move, to change, to transform the world around us. Women, I believe their agency is rooted more in relationships. So uh, connection, intimacy, uh, uh, nurturing, caring, like they, these are traits that come more, more naturally to them. And in the same way, they change the world through those, that agency of relationships. So I believe that the, for me, the difference rely, uh, comes to how do we embody those characteristics? You know, uh, gentleness, kindness, self-control, patience, joy. Men tend to do that with a, 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 an agency rooted in our bodies and how we move and transform the world. And women tend to do that in relationships. That's how I've come to understand that. Sure. Yeah. And for me, it's been really helpful because 
I can then get beyond the roles. Uh, you know, well, men have this role and women have this role. And again, for me, the problem with with defining specific roles for the gender is it defines gender by what we do, not by who we are. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 I think you did a wonderful, beautiful job with that. Um, and it is, it's so mysterious. And, yeah. um, and I always want to guide people into what is healthy in gender, whatever that happens to be. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think even within those two categories, there's, there's diversity, right? Like different, there's total I mean, diversity. Men, you know, obviously, I mean, we all know men, there, there are men who are just going to be much more relational and there are women who will be much more kind of task focused yeah. and, and all of that. Uh, but I think you're right that broadly speaking, uh, those categories make sense to me. And then, yeah, you can then see, okay, what does it look like to embody the fruits of the spirit within kind of the way that God has made made you to be, specifically as a, as a man or a woman. So I, I think those categories are, are can be helpful. Um, I want to talk a little bit about sort of the messages that men hear at at church because uh, that's a whole big bucket of confusion sometimes. <laughs> uh, why is it? I, I just I don't know. I engage with men's ministry content quite a bit, helping our men's ministry pick curriculum, and we'll do different you know conferences and this and that. Uh, and it's just always amazing to me. Like, why is the why is the promo video for the program about uh, recovery from sexual addiction? Why do we got to have explosions in that video? I just <laughs> I don't get it. Uh, why is everything involving knife throwing and monster trucks and slabs of meat? Um, not that I'm necessarily against any, you know, whatever kind of people are into those things. I get it. Why do you think those sorts of cultural stereotypes are so commonly found even within Christian environments when we talk about men's stuff? Yeah, I, I think I think there's a couple of things going on there. One, I think all of that points back to what we were just talking about with how we embody agency, right? Explosions, uh, weapons, all of these things are ways in which we can transform, change the world around us using power, strength, agility, speed, all of that. So I think there's a piece there that's somewhat primal and universal. And so there's a natural appeal. I think that there's also this piece where and this is complicated within American culture for a host of reasons, but the church has not done a good job of challenging the broad uh, American masculine ideal and has sort of bought into it like this is just it. I think mm, part of that yeah. is the conflation with American politics and religion. We yeah. just have very, these two things, even though we talk about separation of church and state, they're very integrated with one another. And because of that, I think even our ideas around gender that are cultural, a lot of people just take to be well, that's biblical. It's how it is. Um, or we confuse the idea of traditional traditional cultural ideals with biblical ideals. And that's just not necessarily true at all. So I think that that's the, I think it's just broadly speaking, an uncritical uh, acceptance of American masculinity. Hmm. Yeah, no, I think you're right about that. And I mean, it's something that we're constantly thinking about is just this idea of, of what are people, and we would include ourselves in this, what are people being discipled by? Uh, mm -hmm. and, and we, we, we kind of look at that, look at a number of issues through that lens. And, and certainly it's relevant to the, to what we're talking about here. I mean, you think about, okay, yeah, are we being, wh where are we getting our definition for what 
healthy masculinity looks like. Uh, and I think for, un- unfortunately for a lot of men, we're getting it from, uh, yeah, kind of this, uh, just American sort of prototype of what a, what a, or archetype more like of what a, what a man looks like with all of sort of the traditional quote unquote values that come with that. Uh, yep. we're seeing, certainly you look at the types of voices that are elevated in our society today. They are largely very combative. Uh, mm-hmm. And they are not, uh, you know, the, the most famous talking heads in our culture are not known for their nuance <laughs> and are not known yeah. for their their ability to listen. I know this is shocking. This is new information yeah. for everybody listening, I'm sure. Um, and then certainly politics. I mean, I think that, you know, in our context, uh, conservative politics are a big deal. And within a conservative worldview, there are certain uh, certain ideas about what a man is and not all of them are healthy. And I could yep. look at liberal definitions of what a man is. And there's certainly unhealth there as well. I, I don't know that there are a ton of people that are super discipled by <laughs> liberal political ideas in our context, at least. So, so I think more about the conservative side of things. And, and it is, there is this sort of almost weird insecurity that comes from questioning those things because they're so inherent in our culture and we'll, we're so discipled by them. Uh, it, it's a challenge to kind of try to to counteract that in in some ways, and it's it's a it's a live issue for us. I'm su- sure it's a live issue for you. Yeah, a- absolutely, it is. And I want to be really clear. Like, I think I think that a lot of men's ministry, even if they've got the promo videos with things exploding and and all monster trucks and all of that, I absolutely think that they're going to talk about Jesus, and I think they're going to talk about the gospel, and I think that right. that's wonderful and that's good. And I think that there's a lot of folks who would who would then say. Well, we are looking at the Bible and we are comparing our masculinity to Jesus. And I would say yes, but we also have to be aware that doesn't matter who we are. We are all looking at Jesus and reading the Bible with a cultural lens that we have to learn how to examine itself. We have to learn how to take the the glasses off, look at the lens, understand where we got that lens, what that lens is telling us and how that lens is then affecting us what we see in Jesus. So I've had, since I've written the book and had conversations about this and done men's retreat, I've had a ton of guys point and say, well, Revelation 19, I mean, Jesus has a tattoo. He's got a sword and he's (laughs) killing his enemies. Yes. But we can also look at it as one that is the triumphant Jesus who returns and not the human ideal that we are to chase after. And two, uh, there's some question about how exactly Jesus even killed his enemies in that passage, whether it was with the sword or the blood that was already on his robe before he even killed his enemies. So he killed them with his own, like like he defeated his enemies with his own death. Right. So that's, there's ways we can look at that. And we have to be willing to take off those cultural lens, come to the Bible, look at it from all these different angles and examine uh, just who Jesus is and how he's ultimately going to challenge our perceptions. Yeah. Now, uh, and, and with that, uh, you devote a whole chapter in the book to the idea of of weakness. And certainly mm-hmm. that is one among many ways that sort of Jesus, Jesus challenges a lot of our cultural narratives about masculinity. Uh, what role does a sense of weakness play in healthy masculinity? Because on the surface, it sounds like a bit of a contradiction in terms, right? But Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But wh- why well, is that I, important? Well, I think one is to recognize that men are human. Uh, to be human is to be weak. Uh, and and I don't mean this in a, in a doormat, uh, facile kind of way. What I mean is we are in many senses unable to control the world around us. 
There are going to be things happen to me that are outside of my control. There are going to be things that happen to my kids and to my wife that are outside of my control. And I am weak in the face of those forces. I am, I am unable to change them there. I'm unable. So I, I shared with you all before we started recording that my wife and I went through infertility and struggled with that for a number of years. And that forced me to come face to face with my weakness. I am unable to fix this situation. I couldn't go to enough doctors. The doctors couldn't figure it out in that I'm week. And yeah. so one being allowing men to be weak is to allow them to embrace their humanity and to, and to admit their limited power in the world. Yeah. The other I think connects to what Paul said that when I am weak, then I get to see the strength of Christ in my life. Right. Yeah. And so if we're constantly telling men, it is not okay for you to be weak. What we're also telling them is it's not, you don't get the opportunity to see Christ's strength in your life. You've got to deal with it. You've got to fix the problem. You've got to rely on yourself. You've got to trust only in your abilities. Uh, and, and this, the strength of Jesus that others keep talking about, you don't really get to experience that because you never really get to be fully weak, yeah. but that's just not, Paul says, when I am weak, then he is strong. Right. We need to allow that so men can see the full uh, force of Jesus in their life. Right. Yeah, that's good. Lance, what do you think about that? What, what role does weakness play in, in healthy masculinity? Uh, well, I, I, you know, I, honestly, I think it, it actually plays in a little bit more with fulfilled humanity um, than it does necessarily masculinity. Yeah. I think that I think that all human beings need to have weakness uh, as a part of their portfolio, <laughs> right? <laughs> that you can actually sure. go, and I'm awesome here, and I'm terrible here, and that's just yeah, how yeah. I am. Yeah. Um, I, I, I wanted to highlight one other thing real quick before we yeah. run out of time, sure. and, and and that is uh, when we were doing uh, Nate, when we were doing some teaching on LGBTQ thing. One of the things that I was challenging our people is to. Um, expand categories for what is male and what is female. Uh, expand categories for things that are personality-driven, that are uh, mm -hmm. natural abilities, things like that. And and in doing that, I, I, I want to say that I still believe there are commonalities within men. The reason I think that sometimes explosions are used, if you literally put a bunch of little girls in a garage and a bunch of little boys in a garage, different stuff's <laughs> going to happen in that garage. Somebody's going to get hurt with the dudes. That's all I'm trying to say. And when you kind of go, well, why is that? I have no idea. So yeah. there are commonalities um, in, uh, and you probably looked at this, Nate, but in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Paul said, act like men, be strong. And, and the definition in that was talking about being courageous. Now, that does not mean women are not courageous. It does not mean that women aren't strong. I think he was challenging them and saying, listen, there are things that I've built into you to lean into, and I want you to lean into the better parts of you, not the yeah. weaker parts of you. You know what I mean? Yeah. But here's yeah. the thing. Um, there are outliers, and, and I think that being an outlier is not wrong. Just because you're not similar to the commonality, to the main group, does not make you bad. Right. I think about the fact that a lot of people, oddly enough, really connect with King David as being a man, which wow. cracks me up because he <laughs> is so not the definition of traditional dude. Yeah. He was a right. little poet player, little harp guy out in the field. Nobody even let him hang out when he wanted to do the fighting. They were like, you're stupid. You can't fight. I mean, it was like, yeah, he ended up slaying. the ark and his wife was just like, I've lost all respect for you. Oh, dude, the guy's like, he's like doing little pirouettes and everyone's like, what is wrong with you? So King David was super emotional and all that stuff. And yet he was a man 
after God's own heart, meaning that God even called him out and said, listen, yeah, I get it. He's not Jacob. We just did that funny story at, mm-hmm. at church about Jacob and Esau. So Esau is this tough, you know, I, I hunt and all this stuff. Well, Jacob is the one who's cooking at home in the tents and he's like little book reading guy. If you realize he's the one that wrestles with God later. Jacob was a promised one. And so just because you're an outlier doesn't make it bad. I think that what's really healthy for a lot of men to not have fear about being an outlier is to think of it in terms of, and I'm going to use a really old analogy. Sorry, it's going to betray my age here. Um, There was a game called Trivial Pursuit. I don't know if many people remember this. And you had to get little pie pieces. And so you'd move your little thing around. You'd ask from different categories. So you had an entertainment pie piece, and then you had a sports pie piece. What's intriguing is the only way to win is to have some from all the categories. And when you feel like God is doing a team effort, big thing, and I am one of the critical pieces, I mean, I don't have to be like all the pieces next to me. I can just be my piece and God uses my piece to fulfill his puzzle. And there is beauty in that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I just want to encourage a lot. There are a lot of men that are waiting for manhood to so expand that it gets so washed out because they want to include everybody. And you go, hold on, there's going to be a general thing about man, about men, and just because you are slightly off to the center of that doesn't make you less. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It just makes you think, less common. Yeah. And I think with that pie analogy can be used, I think it's great for teams and recognizing like my place on here is just as valuable as another's and we need all of the pieces to actually win together. Uh, but you can also look at that individually, like as Christ redeems our humanity, yes, I'm yeah. going to already have just part of who I am, how I'm wired and the experiences I've already had in life. I'm already going to have a few of those pie pieces yes. and Christ is going to redeem me and restore me and fulfill me you know, make me more whole such that pieces that I don't have. Yes. Yeah. I'm not a patient person. Now that patience is going to get infilled. Amen. I yeah. am, I, I, I do tend to be more timid and don't take a lot of action in the world. Christ is going to call me to take more action in the world. And those on an individual basis, our pies get filled as well. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I one one quick comment I wanted to make about this concept of of weakness, and then we'll kind of land the plane here with the last question. Is I think there's an important difference between, and I, and I think even with the pie analogy, we're going to be strong in some areas and weak in some areas. I think there's a difference between weakness and passivity. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes in culture, we tend to kind of conflate those two things and, and they're different. And maybe this is, I'll just be honest, it's on my mind a little bit because I've had some sort of odd experiences in the last week with some very sort of passive dads. And I'm just yeah. like, ah, come on, like engage, you know? And and I don't think, I, I think when men are passive, that can create some some challenges. Certainly being overly aggressive can create more, probably more challenges. But I think that it's one thing to recognize our own weakness and to be confident enough in our identity in Christ to acknowledge it. Um, but where it becomes a problem, I think, is when that leads us to passivity and and sort of an unwillingness to engage the world around us. So and I but so I I, I bring that up just to say uh, we can acknowledge our weakness without becoming passive. And we don't need to let shame drive us to a place of, of passivity, if that if that makes sense. No, I think that that's a, I think that's a super helpful distinction. And just to maybe add a, a little piece to that is like 
as we, as followers of Jesus, we are not called to be passive people in the world. We are called right. to be active participants in God's mission to redeem and restore all things. And so that you're, I think you're exactly right to be passive and just be like, oh, well, I can't do it. I'm too insignificant or whatever. That is not the posture that God wants us to take. And that is very different right. than being weak. Right. Um, and, and so I think that's a super helpful distinction, Brian. Yeah. Uh, cool. Well, uh, we'll let you go here, but just one, one last question. Uh, you're, you, you have one son, two sons. How many, how many boys? I have have? two. Okay. You have two, you have two boys. You're ministering to, to young men and, and, and men in, in your church. Uh, what are some practical ways that we can help our sons, our other young boys and young men, uh, embrace kind of a healthier, more Christ centered picture of what it means to be a man? What, What does this look like kind of street level in, in terms of discipling young boys and young men? Yeah, I think one, it starts with affirming their identity and who Christ has made them to be uh, and to not try to uh, shape them into something they're not. So my son, uh, I always talk with him, like, what's your superpower? And, it, and he knows what a superpower <laughs> is. And it's his big heart. Awesome. His big heart is his superpower, his ability to love people, his ability to be emotionally attuned, his his desire to care for his friends. That that to me is a superpower. And so I want to affirm that. At the same time, I call some other things out of him. Like I want to call out being a little more active and call out, hey, don't be afraid to get in there and scrap when you're playing sports. And yeah. you know, like sure. uh, and so I think that that's really helpful. And I think the I think that that language of affirming what's there and calling something, calling out something that is not yet, right? Like Jesus calls the disciples to follow him. Come follow me, come be like me. I'll teach you how to be like me. I think you can do that with our sons and and, and those men that we minister. Affirm what's there, call out the thing that God may be doing next in their life or the the thing that God wants them to embody. I think that's absolutely great. Um, I think the other piece of that, as I think about it, is generations having generations together, it's really important to mix it up. And it's not just all young guys together, uh, but we need to have our wise elders as, and the people who are farther down the road uh, lead us as well and and speak into and affirm uh, young men and the work that they're doing in the world. Um, and then I'll say one thing I do when I'm, when I'm meeting with guys one-on-one um, is I absolutely ask them about their emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, Like what's going on? Like, okay, you told me about this situation. How does that make you feel? And what's crazy to me is the number of times I've I've had to come back to them and say, okay, that's great. You just told me what you were going to do. Okay, you just told me what others are thinking or what you think others are thinking. How do you feel? And I constantly try to help them get in touch with their emotions to get in touch with a a broader sense of their own humanity. Yeah, man, that's good. That's super, super good practical stuff that uh, useful not only, I mean, I think of my life as a dad, I mean, useful in in terms of some language even for my my own children. But yeah, I mean- Lance meets with guys one-on-one. I meet with guys one-on-one. So do you. And and just to kind of create space for people to to express that element of themselves yeah. that, that, as you know better than I do, that a lot of times men are are, are hesitant to do. So yep. um, we want to quit. We want to rush past it and we want to fix it before yeah. we've actually felt it. Yeah. Um, and, and I think we, we can do both at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, Nate, boy, sure appreciate the time today. Thank you so much for for being with us and for for chatting with us. Once again, uh, the book is Man Enough, How Jesus Redefines Manhood. Uh, pick it up and read it. You'll be really glad you did. Thank you, Nate. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks. It was a lot of fun. All right. And thanks to you, uh, Lance, for being part of the show. As always, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back with you in two weeks for another episode of Engaging Culture. Thank you for listening to Engaging Culture, a podcast by Bridgeway Christian Church. 
If you enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening.